Fishing the DMV has big plans for the future, but to get there, I need your help. Our first Patreon goal is 100 Patreon subscribers for $6 a month, which is less than a pack of Cinco's or a Jackhammer Chatterbait. For more information on our Patreon, please go check it out in the episode description down below. Thank you so much. You're listening to Fishing the DMV with your host, Thomas Ahrens. Fishing the DMV is brought to you by Jake's Bait and Tackle, located in Winchester, Virginia. If that doesn't get you jacked up, I don't know what will. Good morning, everybody. Welcome back to Fishing the DMV. I'm your host, Thomas Ahrens. And today I have on a guest that's been, he's been asked for quite a bit, but you know, the problem with being a movie star is it's hard to get a hold of you. I have Sam Scott of Blue Ridge Muskie. Sir, this is a long time coming. Thank you so much for carving out some time in your busy schedule. Absolutely, man. Absolutely. I know we've been trying to get this going for quite a long time now and uh, happy it probably worked. You are an absolutely busy man. And I know this story has been told a couple of times on different uh, media podcasts and magazines, but how did you get into this and really this rise? Because there's a ton of guys out there on different bodies of water. But the way you were able to carve out your niche on social media, too, is something you don't usually see a lot of guides doing. And so I really want to kind of get into that to begin with. Sure, sure. Um, Well, I guess... We can start before I started guiding. Um, by trade, uh, in college and, and after college, I was a computer science major, and I used to develop drone tech, uh, both for private companies and the military. And I thought that's what I was going to do for a living. It was really good pay and a uh, nice, cushy job. Uh, but I soon learned that sitting in an office all day wasn't for me, and I would just always wish I was out on the river. Uh, you know, that was my passion growing up and, uh, you know, fishing was always a passion, but the drone job was kind of a smart decision after college, you know. Anyways, I did that for a couple of years uh, and finally got tired of the office gig and uh, made, the, made the jump to quit that job and, and start guiding. Um, so that was 2016 when I did that. And uh, that was right around the time a lot of the fishing YouTubers were you know, making it big and social media fishing was just kind of getting its uh, traction. Um, and so that's what I did. I hit social media really hard. I, I did videos on YouTube. Uh, nothing crazy, nothing fancy. Just pushed a lot of content, a lot of fishing content, both videos and uh, photos. Uh, just to get my name out there and reputation, you know, because I was known locally uh, as, you know, a great musky angler, great smallmouth angler. But outside of Virginia, no one really knew my name at the time. Um, you know, so that's what I did starting out is just, uh, got out there every day I could pretty much every day of the week, you know, 300 plus days a year, uh, and caught as many fish as I could with both myself and my buddies and clients and, uh, just pushed content really hard for like two or three years. And I think, you know, after two or three years, it, it took off. I was pretty much full time, you know, 100 to 150 trips a year at that point. And at this point, I'm almost at 300 a year. So I, I stay pretty busy. Dear God, man. Good Lord. What? There's a bridge gap, though, between you flying drones for the government and you becoming an angler, like a full-time guided angler. How much did you fish prior to making this leap? Was this something that was just kind of like on the back burner? You were <laughs> obsessed with it? Like, how did that all intertwine into you making the leap? Yeah, so I, I fished growing up. Uh, I stayed on the river in high school. And even before I could drive, mom would drop me off on a Friday after school and pick me up on a Saturday evening. I'd stay out there all night. Um, so it was, it's always been a passion. I've stayed on the river since I was a kid. 
uh, camping, fishing, hanging out with friends. Uh, <clears throat> but when I went off to college and started my career in the UAS industry, you know, I, I became like a weekend warrior, you know, and sometimes I'd call the boss in sick. So I'd go out fishing. Uh, but it was just, you know, the passion just was getting in the way of work. You know, I just, I would, that's all I could think about was getting out there fishing, take my buddies out, just enjoying the river, not just for the musky fishing, just being on the river itself is, you know, I call it medicine. You know, it's my church. Um, but yeah, it, it was getting in the way of work. I, I was letting it get in the way of work pretty much. And so, uh, in 2016, I, I just decided to leave the office gig and, and, uh, start the guide service. And I think that there was a period of time, maybe like eight, eight months to a year where I did both for a while, you know, I was doing like Friday, Saturday, Sunday, uh, guided musky trips and then four days in the office. And I did that for about a year, but, um, quit and went full time pretty quickly after that. That's brutal. That's really hard to make that kind of jump. Yeah, it was, it was, it was, uh, it was, uh, definitely a lot of work, you know, um, starting out because I was trying to put everything I could into the guide service. Uh, everything I could. I was, you know, working four days in the office, and then after the office, I'd get home and edit video, or I'd go to the <laughs> river, <laughs> go to the river for a couple hours after work, and then edit video. But the whole YouTube thing was a lot of work, and I have kind of stopped doing that since, uh, mainly because I don't have the time for it. But uh, I don't think a lot of people realize just how much work it takes to to put content out like that. And the guys that are still doing it, like today's angler and Mike Keys and you know, all the burning eights, all those musky guys that still put that video content out, man, I get my hats off to them because I know how much work it is. When did this segue from, I, I guess, I, I like to call it when you first start a business, your startup phase, and it goes from a startup to where you are now. When did you and your mindset, it clicked and there's that transition between like, I think I'm going to do this and to, oh shit, I made it type of deal or, or, or you feel better off. Right. Well, I think initially, like I was saying, about a year, the first year, I was kind of doing both. Uh, still had a salaried position, and uh, I was doing like the weekend thing, Friday, Saturday, Sundays. I was taking clients out, um, and at that point, I kind of just regarded it as my side hustle. You know, it was funding my addiction for musky. You know, so I'd fish the weekend with clients, make a couple bucks, buy more lures, buy more rods. You know, and uh, put gas in the boat, pretty much. Um, so at that point, it was more of a side hustle than it was a career path, even though I, I definitely wanted it to be a career path. Mm -hmm. I knew for it to be a, a, an actual career that I could support my family on, I would have to do it full time and put everything I had into it. I couldn't be splitting sides, you know, splitting time with uh, with this uh, job that I had. So I'd say, uh, you know, after a year or two of being full time, putting everything I had in, into the, the guide service, uh, it paid dividends. You know, I was, I was out there at least five, six days a week, pretty much throughout the season. And our season is eight months long here. So, uh, nine months sometimes. I, I asked this to, to all my guys when they first come on the show. And, and this is a hundred percent for you when you're guiding five, six, seven days a week, 300 days, as you put it earlier, how do you keep your body and mind in shape to do that? Because that is like, it's a brutal job physically and immensely demanding. Right, right. It definitely is. Uh, that's a good question. Um, as far as my mind goes, I think that's an easy part for me. I like meeting the clients. I love talking and, uh, you know, just talking shit on the boat with them and sharing stories and 
uh, I always tell people that's the best part of my job is the people I meet and the fellowship out on the boat. You know, the fish is just a bonus. Um, but I, I have met some really awesome people and, uh, and that's gotta be the best part of this job is just the people you meet and, um, and what you learn about, you know, uh, as, as far as the body goes, yeah, you're, you're not getting a whole lot of sleep. You know, I'm, I usually start my day at four, four thirty is when my alarm goes off and I leave the house around five thirty. uh, get to the river around six, you know, six fifteen, six thirty, something like that. And, and we usually start our trips around sunrise. Um, not so much in the middle of winter cause it's too cold, but most of the year we start around sunrise and we fish eight to 10 hours, you know? And so then I'm back home at five or six, got to clean everything up, you know, get all the tackle sorted and ready for the next day. Sometimes I'm changing, transitioning from gear fisherman to fly fisherman. And so everything's got to be torn out of the boat. Fly gear has got to be put back in, got to rearrange everything. Uh, and so usually by the time I get home, there's an hour at least of just getting stuff ready for the next day. So by the time I walk in the house ready to eat dinner with my wife, you know, sometimes it's 6.30, 7 o'clock, sometimes later. Um, you know, and then, of course, the phone never shuts up. So by the time I get home, I've got to answer emails and text messages from potential clients that want to book trips, you know, answer questions and, and talk to people about, you know, what their trip is going to look like and, uh, and how to book and all that. Um, so really the day never stops. Even if I have a day off, like for instance, today I had my first day off in 15 days. Jesus, uh, man. but, uh, I had a ton of stuff I had to get done. The truck had to be serviced. I had to get new tires on the truck. You know, a bunch of tackle had to be worked on reels had to be relined. Like it, it was still, a, I still worked, you know, even though I was off the river, I was still working. And, and of course on the phone, constantly talking to people, that's, that part never ends. Um, and I've done some things uh, here in the last year or two to kind of help with the time management on the phone. I got a new booking service and that's cut out a ton of time, uh, a, a ton of the conversation that I have to take, you know, to inform people and, and, and educate people about the trip and lodging, all the details. Um, so that's helped out quite a bit. But yeah, it's, it's a, it's a full-time job, man. I always, I always laugh about telling people I left an eight to five, salary job so I could work 24 hours a day. <laughs> I think that's so important though to bring to light because we always want to glorify guiding or glorify being in the outdoor industry. But you have to understand that you need to give this context to potential customers that, yeah, it's like, this is why the tip is so important. This is why, you know, probably don't just be so pissy all the time because you always have those people and it's good to give them the perspective, like how much work y'all put into this on a day-to-day -day basis to make this happen. And, but Absolutely. I bet that rock proof boat though, that you just upgraded to makes it life a little bit easier too. Oh dude, you have no idea, man. Best, best boat I've ever owned. It's, it's a Cadillac out there. When did you pull the trigger on that? Um, so I bought this one back in April. I just randomly had a client out last December. Um, Brian Mullaney, he's, uh, he used to guide for Joe Raymond and, uh, he got into tournament fishing tournament bass fishing. And so he had all these boats. He bought this jet boat so he could do, you know, guided smallmouth trips on the Susquehanna. And he bought it and didn't really use it. Uh, but we were on my stealth craft jet boat back in December and um, talking about it. And it was a great boat. I loved it. And I just kind of offhand mentioned, I wish I had a little more room and a little more horsepower. And he was like, well, I got a rock proof I'd sell you. And, uh, these people don't come off these things very easily, especially the model that I've got. They're sought after and, uh, they're hard to find. Um, 
And so I didn't really think he was serious. You know, I thought maybe he was just talking shit with me. But a month later, I texted him. I was like, hey, man, you serious? You, you really want to come off that boat? And he's like, yeah, man, come get it. So I drove up to Maryland, picked the boat up, brought it back down here and worked out of it for a week. He let me take it and, and check it out for a week. So I did trips, ran out of it, worked out of it for a week to see if that's what I wanted. Oh, man, after the third or fourth day, I called him. I was like, all right, dude, I'm sending you a check. Like, <laughs> I don't need no more time. This boat is amazing. Uh, and I'd been in a couple before that. You know, I'd had buddies and you know other guides that ran them. And they're awesome boats. But to work out of one for a couple days, you know, it was just so much more room uh, and just power, you know, to get up on plane and go places and not have to worry about hitting a rock in the, in the low water. Um it's it's a pretty sweet rig for for what I do. How does that affect when you when you're looking at the James River and 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 the amount of area that you're going to be trying to to navigate to find your key areas? How much does that affect it when you're going from a drift style boat to a crotch rocket, basically, for lack of a better term? Right. Well, it's it's definitely more efficient, right? So. If you've only got eight hours in a day to catch muskie and you're fishing for one or two bites a day, um, you really want to capitalize on every single minute you can. Uh, and it's kind of a double-edged sword. You know, I'll go over both the, the benefits and, uh, and, and, and the negative side of jet boats. And I think there's, there's benefits to the drift boats too. Um, you know, I rode a drift boat for, you know, the first four or five years of guiding and, uh, and loved it and did very well with it. Um, but there's definitely an efficiency factor with, with the jet boat, right? So you're fishing the prime spots and then a minute later you're in the next prime spot. You know, you don't have to row through 30 minutes of dead water to get to the next prime spot. Um, and so your clients are fishing more. They got rods in their hands. They're casting more throughout the day instead of sitting and waiting to get to the next spot. Uh, and that's important, you know, because every single cast matters. You know, if, if you can gain an extra 10% of the day casting, that's going to add up to fish in the boat um, with musky fishing. It's, I always break it down as like an efficiency game. You know, the, the most good cast you can make to good water, you know, with good baits in front of fish, more fish you're going to catch. Um, so having a, a fast jet boat that can get from point A to point B quickly, um, and also get to places that other jet boats can't get to, uh, you know, because this thing is a tank. You can rock crawl with it. You can go right over the ledges, you know, hit rocks. Doesn't matter. Keep going. Whereas, you know, bare metal boats or fiberglass boats can't do that sort of thing. Um, so, yeah, it definitely helps. I would definitely say the rock group definitely helps put more fish in the boat. But on the other hand, when you're rowing a boat, a raft or a drift boat, you're kind of forced to fish other areas of the river that you would overlook. You would run right by in the jet boat. And if you're not familiar with the river, you don't know it to, to the level, you know, after fishing it a whole lifetime, uh, sometimes doing a drift and fishing everything is going to be to yeah. your advantage because you're learning the river. You're finding where all the fish are. You know, you're fishing areas that the jet boat guys fly right past. So sometimes, you know, the guy in a raft will pick up an extra fish somewhere you would never think, you know, must be laying. And that's just because they're one speed, nice and slow all day long. And, and clients are casting through the riffles and in places where you no, normally wouldn't musky fish, you know, in the winter or something. Uh, so there's, you know, there's that. That's definitely an advantage. Uh, you know, the drift boat's quieter. It's more peaceful. You know, some of the fly guys, some of the more traditional clients and the fly fishing guys prefer that style of, of guided trip. And, 
And so I've always maintained uh, that option for them. I've got another guide that, that rows a raft. And um, if that's what the customer wants to do, we've got that available for them. Um, but most, most customers would prefer to be in, in the jet boat. And a lot of them, a lot of them say, man, the ride was worth the price of admission. <laughs> I'm glad you, you mentioned the compare contrasting. Cause I remember when I had Nolan Miner on the show, I think it was the first time. And he told me when he made his transition to the kayak and he was like, man, I didn't realize how many fish you left in an area when you have a 250 on the back. And I was right. talking to, uh, uh, SB fishing uh, earlier today because he's fishing a tournament in the Potomac. It's the same thing. It's like you get this itch because you got the big engine. I, I got to run. It's stupid not to. But when you're forced right. to fish, you're like, shit, there's more here than, than I thought. And I, I want to kind of yeah. label this to you as a guy that fishes the James. How much does it actually hurt when you have so much knowledge? Does it actually, do you rediscover new places when you're forced to actually fish through an area versus like, this is the juice. I hit that. We got to move. Yeah, so I think that was uh, that's definitely been a part of my progression as both an angler and a guide. You know, every year I learn something new. Uh, I try new tactics. Uh, I fish new water, um, and I've I've kind of been careful not to let myself get stuck fishing the same places with the same baits. You know, what I know that works. Um, at least at least once a day, I always try to do something new. You know, whether that's pull a bait out of the box that. I wouldn't normally pull out that time of year or uh, maybe go try an area that I blow past all the time um, or maybe just try a completely new tactic. And, and that's the awesome thing about being a guide is you get anglers from all over the country. You know, a lot of them have musky fist before and, and they bring skills and tactics from their home waters, whether that be Wisconsin or Michigan or New York mm. or North Carolina, West Virginia, you know, they're musky everywhere. And these guys bring tactics back to me to show me, you know, this is what I do at home. Let's see if it works here. And I love that. I never tell them, oh, that's not going to work here. I never, you know, boo-hoo anything because I've seen it happen time and time again where I'm surprised by a tactic that works that I would never have thought of. And so over the years of seeing all these new, you know, tactics and learning from people and trying new things myself, uh, you know, you just start to build up this this arsenal of, of knowledge and skills and, and different tactics and uh, techniques and whatnot. And um, yeah, it, it over, you know, the course of a, a couple of years, you can start stacking up some, uh, some great ways to catch these fish. Are, are Minnesota, Wisconsin guys, is that as different as, as California guys in bass fishing, bringing techniques over East? Is it, is it that different of a style? It is. And it isn't. So, um, like I'll give I'll give you an example. I had Pete I had Pete Mania out, Pete Mania and Lee Talkin out uh, a couple years back uh, on two separate occasions. But um, of course they brought all their tools and baits with them. You know that they fish rivers in in the North Woods, Wisconsin, Minnesota. Um, and then I brought some baits. You know that I have been having success that week on. And, you know, I'd say, hey, you know, this is what we've been catching fish on. You know, you guys can throw whatever you'd like. We can fish however you like. But, you know, here's here's a good start if you want to see what we've been having success on in the last couple of days. And they take a look at the baits. Like, what is that? I've never seen that before. You know, like a pull bait oh, or a cool. sucker bait. You know, something that kind of grew up, was created and grew up in this area. Um, hmm. You know, and uh, they just didn't, they, they'd never seen it before. And as soon as we started throwing it and it was moving fish, it was like, wow, that's, that's insane that that works, you know, so well down here. 
Whereas, you know, some of the tactics and, and baits that would work really well in the rivers up there might not work here. A good example is the Medusa. Uh, you know, a lot of guys fish the Medusa up north and have great success, like really good success. Everyone loves a Medusa up north, especially in the big lakes. Uh, and for whatever reason down here, they just not that great. They do catch fish. They will catch fish here and there, but they're not that amazing bait that they are up north that everyone throws. Suix is another one, right? The old uh, tried and true Suix lure from way back in the day. You know, everyone still fishes that thing up north. And that thing's, you know, from, uh, I might be getting this wrong, but I know it's like the 60s probably when that, when that bait came out. It's an old bait. It's very simple and it works. But you bring that thing down here and it just doesn't produce like it does up there. Um, you know, our, our fish are just keyed into a different, a different style of, uh, rivers and, you know, our, our suckers down here are a little bit different, you know, where they might have more shad up there in their rivers. You know, we have primarily hog suckers down here and red breast sunfish. Uh, so our fish are just doing different things, I think, you know, and, uh, it's cool to compare and contrast our tactics and how they differ, you, especially when I have like a guide from up north or you know, a lifetime angler like Pete Mania that's been doing it for twice as long as I've been alive almost, you know, like dude's an absolute legend. And man, I soaked up everything I could like a sponge when I had him out. But uh, yeah, you just learn things over the years and, and you figure out what works and what doesn't. And uh and I always try to keep an open mind, you know, and try to learn new new things every year. Fishing the DMV has big plans for the future, but to get there, I need your help. Our first Patreon goal is 100 Patreon subscribers for $6 a month, which is less than a pack of Cinco's or a Jackhammer Chatterbait. For more information on our Patreon, please go check it out in the episode description down below. Thank you so much. So you, you perked up two things. Um, you talked about the, the sunfish and you also talked about the suckers and... Uh, you know, this past week I, I was nominated onto the black bass advisory board for Maryland. So one of the topics that came up in our meeting was the flathead situation on the upper Potomac. Um, so yeah, we're going to get right into that real quick. Um, sure. how, how has the bait been on the James with the flathead? I, I've had a couple of guides on from the James. I've had a couple of anglers on that fish there and they're like, it's, this could become a worse problem. Is that taking it out of context or is it something that is present that's a problem oh it's it's definitely an issue down here um i would say in most of the river most of the james river is not a big issue right now i mean it's they're definitely voracious predators and they have to they have to feed on a lot of biomass especially those big ones it, it takes a lot of biomass to sustain a, a flathead population and when they run out of brim and and sunfish they're going to eat smallmouth and whatever else they can get their mouths on. Uh, but one thing I'll bring up uh, about that topic is several years ago, I think it was 2019, maybe, maybe 2018, I worked on a study with the state biologist. It was a, a fairly big undertaking that we did. It was called a depletion sampling. Mm -hmm. And we did it in Lynchburg, Virginia on the James River, right? So in Lynchburg, we have a dam that prevents yep. any uh, movement upstream. There's no bridge or, you know, no way for the fish to get upstream over that dam. It's a, a high, high head dam. Well, depletion sampling takes, we try to shock up every single fish in a given stretch. And in this case, we did a quarter mile down from the dam. So, uh, pretty much all the way up to the dam, we would shock. And we had like, I think it was 14 shock boats lined up shoulder to shoulder all the way across the river. 
and we would just slowly work up, shocking everything up, and we would net the muskies, the smallmouth, the flatheads, the channel cats, but also the minnows, every minnow species we could find, the sunfish, you know, the eels, it, everything that turned its belly up, we would net, put in the live well, and then it would go, we'd have another jet boat ferrying uh, our, our contents of the live well in the boats to the banks so that we could continue to shock and continue to work our line up to this dam. And on the bank, we had like 30 or 40 biologists with these giant pool size holding tanks with uh, water circulating in them. And they would go through each and every fish that we shocked, measure it, log it, and then release it down below a riffle so that we weren't shocking up the same fish again. And it was an all day undertaking. A lot of people there. I mean, probably close to, I'd say between 75 and 100 people were at that event. Holy uh, shit. And I was fortunate, yeah, I was fortunate enough to be able to get involved in this, and I, I actually filmed it as well. That video is on my YouTube channel if anyone listening wants to check that out. Uh, but getting to the point here, what we learned from that event was we found a lot of flathead catfish in the 20 to 30 pound range. Uh, and also from compared to the last depletion sampling and the last uh, fall samplings that these guys had done in Lynchburg, we saw a decrease in smallmouth bass. It wasn't a huge decrease, but it was no, definitely a noticeable decrease. Mm -hmm. And so what was going on there, uh, these, these guys were hosting uh, flathead tournaments or catfish tournaments uh, every Friday or Saturday night for the whole summer. And so anglers would fish from all around. Uh, I don't know if it was the entire river they could fish or maybe statewide. Uh, I'm not sure. Uh, but the weigh-in was in Lynchburg. And so they'd bring all these catfish from all around that they caught throughout the night. And they'd weigh them in Lynchburg and then let them go in Lynchburg. Jesus. And so all those giant catfish these guys were calling through the tournament and only keeping the big ones were getting released in Lynchburg. Uh and yeah, they, they put a beating on the smallmouth there. Um, you know, that in, com in combination with more fishing pressure, you know, that place isn't what it used to be five years ago. Um, you know, and, and it's, it's no secret that flatheads do eat smallmouth. Uh, you know, I, I saw a photo recently Joe Raymond put up of uh, like a 20 inch or half digested. He pulled mm -hmm. out of the gullet of a giant flathead, 20 inch smallmouth. Uh, you know, like I said, it takes a lot of biomass to feed those guys. Same thing as a muskie. You know, muskie's the same way. It takes a lot of biomass. You know? So you got to have a healthy bait fish population to sustain a population of muskie like we have here. Does the increase in the, the flathead biomass affect the behavior of muskie at all? I, we know, and especially I've had Jeff Little on the show. I've had some biologists up in my area talk about how the old wintering holes for smallmouth. Now the smallmouth are wintering a little bit shallower now because, because of the flathead. I mean, how does that affect the apex predator of the river and the muskie? Um, I'm not sure. I don't know if I could really speak on that. So on the upper James here, uh, which is the river I primarily fish, I also fish the new river quite a bit, but I live closer to the James. So I end up on that river more often. Um, but on the upper James, the flathead population is pretty sparse. You have to get further down, like uh, towards the dams. We've got a lot of dams down towards Lynchburg, Big Island area. And that's usually where the, the larger flathead populations are. Um, and there's also great smallmouth fishing in those areas too. So um, I don't know that I could say that it's affected the uh, the smallmouth in our area. I haven't 
worked at the state on any of those studies. I haven't really talked to them about that. Uh, it's definitely something I know they're keeping an eye on, especially after that depletion sampling. Um, you know, I think um, they, they always do a different area for the depletion sampling. So, we, you know, we could ask them what the depletion for 2020 and 2021 looked like, you know, as far as the flathead versus smallmouth populations. Uh, but as far as a lot of the areas on the upper James, further up in the mountains, uh, the flatheads are f are fairly thin in population. They're there. They're that. They're definitely there. And we occasionally catch them on musculars. We'll catch forty pounders on musculars. Um, but they're not as as thick, as dense in population as they are further down in the dam areas, where you know that water pools up and it's really deep. Uh, and then you go to even further down, like towards uh, towards Richmond, and that's that's really where they're at. You know, that's where guys mm -hmm. are catching giant, giant fish. And, you know, they're catching them on swim baits in the spring. And I mean, it's a big deal down there. The, the catfish fishing gets way better the further down you go. So last question, on the flathead, and I've probably asked every single person, this every biologist. So no pressure here. Just want anecdotal evidence from you too. Why is it the new river is actually the home range of the flathead. And that is the one area where you have homeostasis between the smallmouth, the muskie, and the flathead, basically on the East Coast. Every other river, there's there everything's in, out, of, out of whack, out of balance. In your opinion, why is it the new river, it has this homeostasis based on what the biologists state, but no other place can do that? What What is missing everywhere else that that place has? That's a good question. Um, the first thing that jumps to my mind with that is the size of the new river. Uh, so it's a much larger river than the James or, you know, the upper Potomac. Um, and so maybe that has something to do with it, you know, allowing habitats to separate between these fish, you know, allowing more separation, you know, the flathead has a specific habitat that they like to be in. The muskie has a very specific habitat that they like to be in seasonally too as well as the smallmouth. So smallmouth have a seasonal habitat for the summer and a seasonal habitat for the winter. Um, so maybe being that the river is just a little bit bigger and has more uh, variation in habitat than the James River does uh, or the Upper Potomac does, uh, maybe that has something to do with it. I'm not sure. That's that's a good question. Uh, I don't know enough about flathead fishing to, to really properly answer that. I, I'll admit I'm not really... A, a flathead guru <laughs> no 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 but but you and this is what i tell every single i ask every guy this question because like you guys are on the water more than some biologists so you see stuff so anecdotally yeah. you might have a thought that no one else has has you know even considered and I, i've always thought that because i've asked odenkirk i've asked the guy from I, I have this episode hasn't dropped out yet but i had the guy from clemson that actually does the, the alabama bass thing he doesn't understand it so no one has a great idea of why that place works and nowhere else you know, I grew up on the Shenandoah. I moved to the Upper Potomac, and right now, our bluegill population is gone. There's no bluegill left because of the flathead and the flathead anglers, and the Shenandoah now has it too. And so it's really weird how these rivers, and it seems like the James, are being taken over with this. But what's funny is when I was growing up, people bitched about the muskie being the issue. Always yeah. bitched yeah. about that, especially the and small that took mouth years. Culture. That took years to try to that changed the the subject on that yeah change, change people the public opinion on that and we're still working on that but um yeah i definitely understand that and one one thing i bring up on that topic is uh some of the, like i said the 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 flatheads on the upper stretches of the james and the mountains are sparse right so you kind of run into areas where you know there's flatheads and other areas where you've never seen one in your life 
Um, you know, and there's one, one place in particular that happens to have some really big flathead I've caught just fishing for musky, you know, we're catching 40 pounders there uh, pretty much every fall, just fishing for musky. They're in there, but that same area, that half mile or three quarter mile stretch of river also happens to be, you know, the best freaking spot for smallmouth that I know of for miles. You know, the, hmm. the big, the really big smallmouth just freaking stack up there. Um, and you know, so it must, they must be coexisting somewhat well for, yeah. for me to be finding the biggest smallmouth in the river and the biggest flathead in the river. And also a heck of a lot of muskie in the same three quarter to, you know, a mile stretch of river. Um, and, uh, that, that goes to show that, you know, they are somewhat coexisting. And also you, you mentioned your sunfish populations were decreasing. Uh, well this year, myself and a lot of local anglers and other guides have noticed that our sunfish populations are bounding back. We've seen a ton of wow. sunfish, uh, you know, that we didn't see in the last two or three years, as well as, um, uh, a couple other species, a couple other bait species. Um, the, what's uh, the, uh, the small, uh, bull, not, not bullhead. Uh, what are these other small catfish species? Oh, oh, um, oh, God damn it. I know what you're talking about. Hellbenders? Not hellbenders. Um, no, no, no. It's a, it's a small catfish species. I know exactly belly. what you're Yeah, I know what you're talking about. Shit. That's, that's going to keep me up at night. <laughs> it's right there on the tip. But anyways, those those haven't been seen in a long time. I haven't seen them in a long time. And guys are catching them in freaking sane nets this year. Like, they're, they're everywhere. Uh, and so there's several species this year that I've seen bound back as well as our smallmouth. So I don't know if you heard about the, the smallmouth population, in the James river, the DWR has put newsletters out about it. They've been talking about it They're, They have admitted that the, the numbers of smallmouth took, took a dive, took a nose dive, uh, you know, like three or four years ago, maybe even earlier than that, but very noticeable in the last three or four years. Um, so this year there's a noticeable increase in young fish swimming around. Um, we were having an issue for a while there where they were spawning, but our, our fingerlings weren't getting to adolescent stage. They weren't, they weren't surviving to a, to a larger size fish. Something was happening to them. Couldn't quite figure it out. You know, we, we found a lot of floaters. We'd send them out to the labs, you know, and, uh, and get testing for bacteria infections and, and, and parasites and, and stuff like that, viral infections. <clears throat> we couldn't figure out what was going on with these fish where they were dying. They weren't, they weren't all growing uh, past that small fingerling stage. Um, whereas this year, we have seen a ton, ton, ton more small fish, and our catch numbers are also starting to increase. You know, whereas, you know, full day fishing with two clients last summer, we would be like 30 to 40 fish for a day. Now we're at 55, 60, 65 fish a day uh, consistently. So that's good to see, and, and hopefully that trend continues for the smallmouth. Um, but yeah, the numbers of smallmouth bass definitely have been down for the last couple of years. So it's good to see them coming back. Guys, you know, with all the all the DWR and river keepers we've had on the show this year alone, um, another thing is probably just the, the high water events that we had a couple of years ago where they stacked back to back because we yeah. had a shitty thing, at least on the Shenandoah and the Upper Potomac, which I'm really keyed into, where you're having high water events just when the spawn's supposed to happen. And it just, yes. it's a perfect storm of suck. Right. Right. And that's, that's what we attributed it to at first. I was like two or three years straight of crap spawns. 
Uh, and you know, so that's what we attributed to at first. But then we started noticing the fingerlings weren't making it past a certain stage. Uh, and we were finding like last summer and the summer before we were finding a lot of dead fingerlings, like in the two to three inch range, really small, you know, young of the years, we call them. Um, so something was going on, you know, with that. I don't know whether, you know, it, it could have been something in the water. You know, maybe one of the farms upstream was was fertilizing their field with something they shouldn't have and runoff occurred. You know, you never know. You may, we've got paper mills and all sorts of stuff. You never know what could get into the river one year around the spawn that just taints the the the, uh, the fry. Um, but it was definitely there was definitely something going on. I don't think they ever figured it out. Uh, maybe they did, but the last I talked with them, which was a month and a half ago, about this specific uh, this specific thing, they hadn't quite figured that out. But um, how, it, how, it does look like it's coming back. How has the sub, how has the SAV been on the river? this past year since we've had had a lot of rain have you had a lot of grass yes we had more grass this year than i've ever seen in this river hmm. um which it's uh it's kind of annoying to fish around and i don't know whether it's good or bad for the river but we're also seeing the paper mill in covington uh on the jackson is releasing way more tannins into the water that brown stuff that turns your water you know brownish blackish tea color interesting they've been releasing a ton in the last couple of years. And so like the first 20 or 30 miles of the upper James, some days it's black as molasses. You can't even fish it, man. I had a, I did a video last year. I went out there and scooped water up in my hand and it looked like, like coffee in my hand, like just a puddle of water in your hand. It was black as could be, you know, in, in the eddy areas where it laps up on the grass and the bank, it was like tar on the grass blades. It was nasty, man. And let me tell you, when it got that bad, you could forget China musky fish. They they were not having it. Although it wasn't killing the fish, we didn't find you know belly up fish. It was definitely doing something to them. They weren't feeding. You know, I don't I don't blame them. They had all that crap in their gills. I'm sure it's it suffocated some of the oxygen out of the water. Uh, but they're doing something up there, releasing more tannins. I've talked with the DEQ about it, the DWR. Have you talked to uh, Rob Campbell, just a, the a Waterkeeper Alliance up there in Lynchburg, about the whole thing going on with the Jackson and the paper mill? I sent him a message at one point. I don't think I ever heard back. I have. I tried to contact JRA, the James River Association, about it. Didn't hear back from them. Um, but yeah, it's definitely. It'd be great to get them involved. They have a lot more pull and resources, and you know. I, there's only so much I can do. And, and when I made some noise about it this past winter, I, I definitely heard some backlash from that. You know, the guys from the plant weren't happy that I was making noise about it. And, you know, they, they never it are. is what it is. They, no. they never are. Here's a great little segue now. 
I've been seeing you in the woods and water and, and, and the James River for God knows how long when it comes to muskie fishing. But when you look at, at the James and the New, it's just they're twin sisters. And, and I always thought, and I could be mistaken, it was always the, the New River is what kicked off the muskie craze in Virginia. But then the James somehow swept in like the hotter sister and just took all the limelight. When did the James really become the symbol of muskie fishing in Virginia? Um, I don't know that it is. Honestly, the, the New River is, in my opinion, just as good as the James. Um, and, and in some cases better than the James because it can sustain a higher flow. So if we get a ton of rain, uh, the new river handles that better than the James does. And so I don't know that the, the James necessarily is the better river. It's the river that I fish primarily. Uh, and so that might have something to do with it. You know, hmm. you know, probably 70, 75 to 80% of my trips are on the James. Uh, and so that might have something to do with it, but I wouldn't say uh i wouldn't say the james is the star of the show when it comes to the virginia rivers to fish in fact the shenandoah is coming up very quickly behind us that river yeah. keep your eye on man because the the muskie population and the muskie fishing out there is getting better every year bigger fish more numbers every year every year i see it it gets better and better it's a i have a guy well i'm recording next week with him talking specifically about that but huge shout out to Halliker too and all the work that they've done because that's it, it's coming it's it's coming and so is the walleye population as well yeah jason has put a ton of, of effort into the the shenandoah and you know as well as our muskies inc chapter we uh all the money that we raise uh from like the fingerling fling tournaments and our chapter and even uh my tackle shop uh james river outfitter raises money every year for this but we uh we raise money to feed our fingerling muskies to grow them to a larger size before stocking. And like 90% of those fingerlings get stocked in the Shenandoah. You know, a couple of them go to a, a couple of lakes in the area, but most of them go to the Shenandoah. And so, you know, Halliker has put a ton of effort into it, but also our, our chapter and, and a lot of anglers around the state that don't even fish the Shenandoah. We've just been putting a lot into it to try to get that river, you know, up to par with the James and the new. You know, that's good for me. Even if I don't fish the Shenandoah on the regular, that's good for me because it spreads the pressure out. Everyone's got another place they can go fish. I was just talking with a guy yesterday about this. We we would love to have a good musky lake in Virginia. Right now, we don't. We've got a couple very small, more like ponds than lakes. Um, but like West Virginia has got tons of awesome musky lakes. And you go anywhere north of West Virginia and musky lakes are everywhere. Um, and I really wish the state would put some resources into stocking in a in a larger lake to to spread the pressure out. That way, not everyone's trying to go to the James River, not everyone's trying to go to the New River. You know, we've got a little variety. When the rivers blow out, we've got a lake we can fish. Or you know, when the when the lake's too hot, we still have a river we can hit. You know, so having just having a little variety and spreading the pressure out because, uh, yeah, it's it's worked well for other states, West Virginia in particular. You know, we've got a very similar climate and ecosystem to West Virginia, uh, and Stonewall Jackson. Uh, Stone Cold, Burnsville, they've done very well with their musky populations up there. Are you thinking like a Claytor Lake or a Lake Moomaw then? Something like that? I think Moomaw would be the perfect lake and so do a lot of the other uh, anglers in Virginia. Uh, you know, and there's there's quite a few good candidates that would work well for it. The problem is Moomaw is a trout lake. 
Uh, and yeah. you know, you're going to piss off a lot of trout guys by putting an apex predator that would eat trout into that lake. Um, and so it's like, it's a political thing when it comes to doing that, you know, the, the, the biologist can write up a plan, a proposal, I should say, and be like, Hey, you know, this would work very well if we put this species in here, but when it comes down to it, they're going to talk with, you know, like the, the, the trout chapters and trout alliances and, and, you know, different groups in the area and you know, Lake Muma and residents around and, and it's going to get boohooed pretty quick about putting muskelonge in a trout lake. Uh, but I think Muma will be a good, uh, a good uh, example. I think Smith Mountain, because it already has muskie in it, it's a huge lake. The problem with that, it, it, I think they could, uh, I think it could sustain it well and they, they would probably get along pretty well with, with the striped bass populations that are there. Um, <clears throat> But because it's so such a huge lake, it would take a lot of stocking to get that lake to fishable populations. Uh, and that's a lot of money that they'd have to allocate for that. And also you've got, you know, Smith Mountain is a striper lake and a huge largemouth bass tournament lake. So now you've got to contend with those guys, you know, and, and they're not going to want another predator eating the same bait as what their stripers and their and their largemouth are eating because you know now there's competition for their bass they're not going to get as big so it's very political trying to introduce a muskie into any body water that's not already in i mean it's political just now that i'm seeing more how the sausage is made um it's political to get anything done i mean just to even get the f1 program off the ground where it wasn't private and it's actually taken over by the state that took a huge push to even get that done so and i, and I get it because it, it, money's involved everyone has to make sure their constituents are but you know what you've done and halicker have done have been a, a miracle because if you look at what the shenandoah is turning into what the james is and the new and and people have asked like why why does the james get pounded and, I, and i've said with the other guys that i've had on the show it's because of its location it's perfect the new river is jurassic park it's on the ass end of the world no one wants to drive there generally speaking but if you live in richmond you're a lawyer that owns a practice it's not that hard to go to the james new eh, it's a little bit more of a drive and i think that's why a place just is so much in the line limelight that's very true you know that that's very true uh and there's, there's, uh, but the, the, on the other hand, you've got the new river from the border of North Carolina through Virginia into West Virginia, and it all has muskies. So there's, there's, there's a lot more range in the new, and it's spread out more, and the river's bigger. Uh, so, and, and the fishing is just as good as the James. A lot of, you know, a lot of people don't realize that, but the, the fishing in the new river is just as good. Uh, you know, it, you might have to take a little more time to learn it, you know, cause it's more water that you're covering and figuring out. Um, but the fish get just as big and there's just as many of them. How do you pick then for your, for your guide, for your guided trips? I mean, I'm assuming there's the gas situation too. Dry from yeah, the it's just a distance thing. I'm yeah. where I live now. I'm 15 minutes from the James river, you know, okay. and it's, it's an hour, almost an hour, 45 minutes to get to the, the closest part of the new river to me. Uh, which would be like Radford area. Um, so I do fish the new in the winter quite a bit, mainly because the James will blow out uh, and the new won't, you know, when we have a rainstorm or snow melt or something like that. Um, but yeah, it's it's hard to want to go an hour away and add two hours to your day when you've got a 15 minute ride you know, to, to several sections of the upper games. Sam, you know, I can't thank you enough for coming on the show. I know you're a super busy man. Um, you know, 
please let, let everyone know where they can find you. You might have some trips still left uh, this year or next year that people could book with you. How, how do they do that? Yeah, so I do have a couple of trips left uh, starting next year, January, February, March for, the, for our trophy season in Muskies. And I also have another guy that I mentioned, Jamie, does raft trips. And we've got lots of availability with him in the raft all season long. Uh, but you can find me on social media. I'm on all that, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube. Uh, if you'd like to book a trip, go to anycreek.com and you can find me there. Uh, my calendar is live there. You can find all the dates that are open. Uh, we can support up to six people if you have a big group or a small group or just want to come by yourself. Guys, link in the episode description, everything we talked about today. Go check him out on the social media. Again, and the other thing is, if you don't book a guide trip with him, try to donate to his program or donate to the, to the Muskie Anglers um, to really help the state to be able to push this. Because if it wasn't for the backing of, of just private individuals, I don't think the muskie fishing would be where it is today on all of our river systems. So huge shout out to you guys for all the work that you did. Uh, like and subscribe to the channel, and we'll see you next time on Fishing the DMV. Bye. You're listening to Fishing the DMV with your host, Thomas Ahrens. Fishing the DMV is brought to you by Jake's Bait and Tackle, located in Winchester, Virginia. If that doesn't get you jacked up, I don't know what will.